Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Wednesday, November 16th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm joined today by Knesset correspondent Carrie Keller-Lynn and health and science reporter Nathan Jafai. Hello to you both. Hi. Hi. Today we'll talk about the terror attack in the settlement of Ariel in the West Bank, in which three fathers were killed. There are two victims still in the hospital. We'll also cover the swearing-in of the 25th Knesset, making its own kind of history, along with a study about plunging sperm counts, DNA in tumors, and protests at the UN Climate Conference, COP27, being held in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. We'll jump into all of that right after the break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Okay, Carrie, so you spent yesterday a very long day, from what I could see on social media, at the Knesset, reporting on the 25th Knesset being sworn in. What was the mood? Jessica, you know, the swearing day is always seen as a very festive, exciting day, even as the coalition and opposition are kind of gearing up for whatever tension should be expected. However, there was a real pallor cast over the whole day because there was a terrorist attack in the morning. That was something that was mentioned by almost every member of Knesset who spoke that day. Um, another thing that, you know, when we walked around and spoke with a bunch of MKs from the incoming uh, coalition of right-wing and religious parties. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of reiteration of this expectation to have a government that was strong on terror, that would be strong on internal security. Um, When we spoke to MKs from the expected incoming opposition, obviously the mood was very different. Um, We heard lines very similar to what they were expressing during the whole year and a half of of tension between the two, which is that the uh, right-wing and religious parties may herald the end of democracy, and they themselves said they'd be a fighting opposition. But the real change that we see, which has to play out, but we might see in this Knesset, is that the opposition, um, unlike being uh, the opposition led by uh, Prime Minister-designate Benjamin Netanyahu, it's probably going to be less unified uh, there's no clear leader, despite the fact that Yer Lapid will probably be head of the opposition, as head of the largest party, their diverse ideologies. And the clearest line we hear among them is, we will support the government in bills that we deem as ideologically aligned with us and oppose the ones that uh, are not, rather than the last opposition, which said that we would topple this government at all costs in order to come back into power. There were also some stronger statements that were made that were much more pointed at who is coming into power with this Knesset, correct? 
Absolutely. Uh, Lieberman, uh, who heads the Israel Beitenu, it's a right-wing party, said that this would be an Ayatollah regime because of the influence of rabbis on some of the party heads, um, as well as the judicial reform changes, which would put political control over the judicial system. Ahmed Tibi and uh, Ayman Ode, two leaders of the Khadash Tal party, which is a majority Arab party, also said that this would be a, a fascist and a Khanist government. And by that, they're referring to the late and banned uh, rabbi politician, Mayor Kahana, who was a Jewish extremist, uh, held ultranationalist views, which find echoes today in the um, ideology of Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is the head of the Otsma Yudid party, who wants to be public security minister. Lieberman also said that this is uh, the first anti-Zionist government that Israel is swearing in. Um, I don't know if that is something that I would say. It's definitely not something that the parties would say. But uh, that is a sentiment that is definitely floating around the opposition, feeling that the parties coming in are, as Netanyahu um, quoted the doomsday version of uh, Israel, Netanyahu made a point to say that the government under him will not be that. It will not be the end of Israeli democracy. This is probably going to be the drama we see play out over the coming months. And what was the mood of the Batsala Smotrich, Itamar Ben-Gvir? They were finally getting what, what, what they'd been pushing for for all these months and years, really. So there's another drama playing out parallel to this, and that is the drama of actually forming this coalition and the government which want to be sworn in. Uh, despite the fact that all the parties are quite aligned in wanting to form this government, they're still stuck on which jobs and which policies will be part of it. And Smotlich and, and Netanyahu in particular, uh, they did not meet for about a week um, from last Wednesday until last night at the Knesset after swear-in. And then today we received a message that, again, the, the talks are being called off for at least another day. Um, there are some uh, disagreements about the positions that Smotswitch would have. He wants to be either finance or defense minister. Netanyahu doesn't want to give him either of those senior portfolios. Defense is especially problematic, um, as countries like the United States said that they would not work with extremists like Bengville and Smotlich. Uh, it's very hard to have a defense minister who can't work with your greatest ally. Um, so this remains to be seen. And so both Smotlich and Bengville called for the coalition talks to um, to proceed, proceed to a uh, end that would end up uh, having a government, which of course, uh, with Bengvir might be saying, Smotlich kind of get on with it already. And Smotlich is basically saying, Netanyahu, give me what I want. Got it. All right. We'll obviously keep on following that. Thanks, Carrie. Nathan, turning to you, a very disturbing piece that you have up on the site right now about sperm counts that have really plummeted worldwide, according to a Hebrew University study. And that points to this wider decline in aspects of men's health. What are your takeaways from the study, from writing about this? Yeah, this was a study that was led by uh, Chagai Levine, who is familiar to a lot of the Israeli public because of his prominence during the pandemic, um, in pandemic-related research. And this piece actually relates to sperm counts and what the global sperm count looks like today. And what he found was a very, very significant drop in both sperm count and sperm concentration. Um, that's how much sperm is in an average ejaculation and in one milliliter of semen. This study, led by Hebrew University, points to a very significant drop in sperm count globally. This team did a study in 2017 that pointed to a decrease in the Western world. And this is a very important study because it takes the conclusions globally. 
and it finds a very, very sharp decrease in sperm count over the last 50 years. It doesn't explore in any depth the reasons for this. That will be left to lots of other research, which will explore the reasons for this. But what we see here is that there's been this very significant drop, many implications for male fertility, and also points to a whole world of other stuff that we should be exploring in the scientific community because the sperm count of men is very, very often an indicator of broader male health. And this goes along with other concerns regarding male health. So very important findings, both in terms of fertility and in terms of wider male health. Okay, thanks for that, Nathan. I'm curious, coronavirus part of this? No, the the, uh, the time frame of the study was actually from, uh, until just before the pandemic. So coronavirus wasn't part of it. That will be interesting to see if that has an impact. But what they did here was to take huge amounts of data from different parts of the world, find ways of crunching all the numbers, crunching all the statistics, and obviously all sorts of things spring to mind, like, you know, well, were the sperm samples they were looking at being taken from fertility clinics so they would be from men who had less sperm count? But all of that was taken into account by the researchers to try and get pretty accurate figures here. Okay, thanks. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we're back, Carrie will tell us about her trip down to Egypt's Sharm el-Sheikh last weekend for COP27. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. Carrie, so you made it down there, uh, reporting on the other side of Climate Conference COP27, the protests that take place outside of the actual conference. Tell us about it. So COP27 is the UN's um, annual climate conference. It's the largest climate conference in the world. About 35,000 people descended onto this Red Sea resort town, Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. What we've really seen grow up over the years of, of these COP conferences is there's really a conference inside, kind of in the UN-mandated zone, which requires badging. It's very hard to get a badge. Um, and a conference outside. And you might ask, who is protesting a climate conference, it's generally people who want the negotiators and the activists and the heads of state inside the conference to push an agenda that is actually uh, more climate comprehensive or uh, reparations focused or focused on indigenous and and, uh, other disadvantaged people's rights uh, that the climate negotiators are not uh, going for, so to push for a more ambitious agenda. But what we've seen this year, because the conference is held in in Egypt, uh, which does not allow protest, is that this side conference has been completely shut down. There have been really no protests outside of the conference zone itself, which is is called the Blue Zone. It's managed by the UN. It's kind of seen as a UN territory for the duration of this two-week conference. Exactly. But even within the Blue Zone, there aren't really protests. You know, I was in the Blue Zone and most of what I saw was a handful of folks here and there shouting and holding signs. There was no real protest ethos. There was about one major protest so far that garnered about a couple hundred people. People were really excited about it, but 
despite the fact that I was watching it, um, I wasn't allowed to actually go to the protest. Uh, Egyptian security officials held myself and a number of other conference participants back from leaving the zone and opening the door that we were standing right behind the glass door and they wouldn't let us uh, walk the 50 meters to join the protest. Were there people who were trying to be part of the protest but couldn't actually enter the protests? Absolutely. I was part of that group, but I, I mostly met people who were very excited to have done this. This was the one real outlet that COP uh, let people have so far. And again, it was only a few hundred people. This pales in comparison um, to the last time. And the significance of this is that activists feel like the negotiators and the heads of state who are at the conference didn't really hear a public voice. It's a very integral part of the conference for people who care about climate. And it has been all but shut down uh, this year at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. Okay, thanks for that, Carrie. Nathan, turning back to you, please tell us more about the under-trial technology that offers a fuller report on a tumor's DNA. That sounded quite far-reaching. Indeed, this is Israeli technology that essentially speeds up the whole process of getting a genomic analysis when um, patients are diagnosed with cancer. So genomic analyses is kind of a relatively new area of technology where what you're doing is you're getting basically a, um, I think I called it a kind of close-up detailed study of the tumour, which can be really, really helpful for doctors. It's basically what underpins the whole push towards personalised medicine or a large piece of what uh, underpins this push towards personalised medicine. And what it means is that if you're waiting that can actually delay the start of treatment. And when you're waiting to start cancer treatment, every day is precious, every day is important. So what we have is the development of an Israeli artificial intelligence platform that basically runs this analysis of the information on the tumour very, very quickly and delivers almost instant results to the doctors. And what happened in the last few weeks is that two Israeli hospitals have started trialing this technology, which is made by an Israeli company called Imagine. And in one of the first uses, they actually got this deep dive report in um, Ichilov in Tel Aviv Sarkozy Medical Center, and were able to take this uh, study, these results on two patients with brain cancer, get quicker information on what would be helpful in terms of their treatment and deliver that treatment. So kind of a very real use of this technology, which is quite exciting because what it could mean is faster results for these kind of in-depth analyses when people are diagnosed with cancer. Interestingly, one of the people behind the company actually started working in this area after his own mother was diagnosed with cancer. So there was this kind of very personal experience there as well. Thanks for that, Nathan. Obviously, we'll want to hear more about that as uh, they keep on working on it. Uh, thank you both for being on today's Daily Briefing. Thank you, Carrie, and thank you, Nathan. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And we will be back tomorrow with another Daily Briefing. Amanda Borshaldan will return and uh, host tomorrow's Daily Briefing. And in the meantime, have yourselves a good day and a good listen. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell. 
released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.